0: A new era is unraveling before us, and Tangent is back with a new limited series in collaboration with NYU Shaq Institute of Real Estate. Tangent unites real estate lovers, technology adopters, and passionate creators in an effort to improve our cities and our built environment. Join us every month to learn how PropTech innovators, academic experts, and real estate leaders are solving our present-day challenges. If you're working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that make our cities better and would like your mission featured on our Features segment, feel free to email us at tangentcommunity@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And remember, stay curious and always be learning. Hi everyone, this is Tangent with a new limited series in collaboration with NYU Shack Institute of Real Estate. I'm Edward Cohen
1: and I'm Shami Weissman.
0: To end tangent, we have the pleasure of learning from Manu Patak, a senior associate working at CBRE in New York City. Manu is a dual masters in real estate finance and data science from NYU and also a dear friend.
2: Manu, welcome. Where does this podcast find you? Thanks, Eddie. Thanks, Shami. Uh, This is kind of a great opportunity for me to just come on here, just talk about some Uh, Random stuff.
0: Absolutely. And I don't think there's anything random about what you're doing. Actually, it's a very, very, very random in the in the most relevant way. So uh, let's just let's jump into it. Walk us through your journey uh, up until now, and more specifically, your unique academic background. I mean, urban planning, real estate with data science. Tell us more.
2: Yeah, so kind of starts you know goes way back but you know uh, in short I came out of the urban planning school uh, from India so I hail from India that's where my family is as a developing country I was really focused on studying more about how cities grow how real estate is part of this entire you know scheme of urbanism and while I was doing this I realized you know capital development and improvement was what was leading the way for urbanism so it was mostly what um, you know, monetary policies that were coming in, the capital that was coming in that was kind of spearheading development. And that's why I came to you know uh, learn about real estate and learn more about models and um, looked for universities that were you know teaching courses specifically for this and came to NYU. That's that's how I landed at you know um, NYU's real estate program. And that's where I met you, Eddie, so um, happy <laughs> to be here. Um, what a mistake. What a mistake. <laughs> no, it's
0: fascinating. It's 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 really Definitely. fascinating uh, how like how have the combination of these frames helped you navigate uh, our current landscape? Because, uh, you know, when when I hear this, you know, a, a emerging economy mixed with experience from, you know, New York City real estate and, and then after data science, uh, you know, this such a valuable combination of frames. Uh, it's undoubtedly, you know, going to enable tremendous progress and unlock so much value for our public and, and private spaces.
2: No, definitely. Um, you know, while being at NYU, I was kind of, you know, uh, learning more about developments, urban planning, zoning. We had a lot of professors um, who were kind of teaching us where to go, what to do, create those financial models. And then it kind of struck me that there's a lot of data that is coming into all of this urban sphere. And that's where we started to kind of, uh, I started to realize, okay, there is, there's a lot of data here which no one else is using. There's a lot of um, opportunity here which no one else sees. Maybe I can just go go in, dig in, you know, get myself skilled enough to be able to use that data and then start to see what I can do to create, you know, um, this built environment and uh, get all of this together.
1: Manu, I'm curious, was there a specific subject or data set that sort of inspired you to go this route?
2: Oh, Shami, that's a great question. It all, it all started off um, with just me working with a professor of mine uh, doing some research on real estate and we were trying to find some data sets that were coming out of you know uh, New York City uh, in specific, so New York City Economic Development Corporation and we didn't really know where to look at. Um, and one of the big main kind of data sources that I found was New York City Open Data. That's where, you know, it clicked. Um, you literally go into their website, just search anything that you want to, so buildings, roads, whatever, and all that data set, spatial, as well as, um, you know, any financial data set just turns up. If you have enough skills to be able to get that data out, either live or as an Excel file, or even, you know, in different formats, you you're able to kind of just go in dig around, see what insights you can get and, you know, pair it with what you're doing. So that's where the research within NYU really made sense. And that's where I kind of started to um, look into this New York City open data source as one of the main tools of drive, you know, driving development and driving uh, financing for real estate. Tremendous, tremendous
0: uh, data source. We'll definitely link to that in the episode description. New York open data.
1: So Manu. Tell us a little more about how the corporate solutions and development team that you're working on has been analyzing real estate data and providing insights for retail and financial services.
2: The past two years we've been working within CBRE um, have actually been working with a lot of data sets within as well as from outside the company. So um, CBRE is a services, you know, service provider. So we're providing services for a lot of facilities management, project management services to our financial services and retail services clients. This basically allows us to have a lot of data and collect a lot of data for um, our, a lot of our clients. So we're going into their building, we, what are the assets which are part of that building and being able to manage that we have to create a data set that allows us to um, create benchmarks for all of these different uh, service lines. so uh, if we're able to create a benchmark for let's say our financial services clients and uh, we have about a hundred financial services clients across the world across the globe we are collecting you know a lot of intricate details of assets assets uh, within buildings being able to understand and predict, when these assets are not really, will not be functioning over, the, over a course of a period or if they will get better over time and what are those different factors which will allow those assets to uh, get better over time. So all of this data is collected and then we start to kind of do some analysis on where do we think we are going, is the supply chain, is the optimization of those engineers who are working in those different sites uh, paired well with what we do are we able to compare it against the benchmarks that we've already created, and can we make it better uh, for mm-hmm. our clients and, uh, you know, uh, deliver a much more, much robust operation?
1: So, can you give us an example of a benchmark that you guys used? And and I'm sure some of this information is confidential, but maybe there is there is something that you can share that could be illustrated for our listeners.
2: Definitely. Um, I won't go into very, you know, a lot of specifics here, but um, let's talk about maybe managing a building. While managing a building, we're looking at all the HVAC engineers, all our facility managers who are going in, looking at, uh, you know, lighting. Uh, they're looking at air quality. They're looking at um, different kinds of assets, which which in with which is within the building. So if it's windows, the uh, doors, everything. And we have an asset. You know, we create we create asset inventories for each, where we know what what kind of um, infrastructure is available for each of those um, you know different products or assets. And then we start to look at data sets from other buildings around in that region, and we try to see what is the you know uh, lifetime you know or life cycle of that asset. Um, what is the usual maintenance that is required for each of those assets so that they can last longer what is the best route for each of those engineers who are going in and doing those um you know asset service conditions or uh, prevention maintenance to be able to understand what is their best route how can we optimize their routes and their work so that the assets within those buildings are um you know used uh, a lot and for this we're using a lot of different technological tools um that is where specifically i want to definitely dive into is okay so Um, we have these one, you know, million square footage of buildings, thousand engineers, thousand managers. How are we trying to collect this data? What are the, what is the technology that we're using? What is the models that we are building so that we can create an optimized route for each of these, as well as create, um, best source.
0: That's a great segue, I think to, to the next one. So just to be clear here, when you mean by making the assets better, we're talking about energy efficiencies, we're co- we're talking about operational you know, cost efficiencies, and hopefully make it more useful, more relevant to the neighbors and to the stakeholders, correct?
2: Definitely. So when we are talking about life cycle of any asset, it helps in um, increasing sustainability for those buildings. It helps in increasing the life cycle in the end. So the number of years that an asset can run at its prime efficiency, So we're looking at their efficiencies we're looking at um how we can contribute to a building being able to reduce or increase the air quality pollution in certain circumstances and products and you know being able to manage all that together so that we can coherently operate that building and looking at that um as a as an asset
1: and manu have you guys been looking at how these efficiencies impact the people that are actually leaving and, and breathing in the building
2: definitely so we have a host of services that you know um CBRE provides to its clients and um these these services basically are looking at a lot of different factors so what I specifically um, am focused on is much more asset-based, but there are a lot of different service lines within the company that focus on people coming in, that focus on what is the air, indoor air quality, that focus on, um, you know, health and safety, and uh, a lot of different aspects that are, you know, really an integral part of any lead to client satisfaction. And with the, you know, with COVID onslaught, we've been able to, you know, get these um, different permutations to be able to create kind of more of a, a hybrid workspace where we are getting all these technologies and services together to be able to move forward.
1: Construction finance is bogged down by manual processes, but it doesn't have to be. Rabbit provides cloud-based solutions powered by machine learning to help real estate developers, construction lenders, and service providers manage project finances efficiently from anywhere. No digging through spreadsheets, no searching for emails, no manually gathering information from documents. With Rabbit, you can automate tedious manual tasks, organize construction finances in one place, and empower your team with better collaboration tools. So, whether you're a real estate developer who wants to scale faster, or a construction lender who wants to streamline loan administration, Rabbit can help you do it. For more information, visit rabbit.com. That's rabbit, r-a-b-b-e-t.com.
0: So Manu, I mean, with your background in urban planning, your work is fascinating. Uh, it not only revolves, revolves around cities, buildings, and the humans within them, but you're at the intersection of data science and urbanism. So. Taking it, you know, zooming out a bit more from the asset to the the town and the city, how can city planners, city officials apply these data models, you know, to to plan for a more long-term stability and uh, prosperity for all its stakeholders?
2: I was actually talking to a few people from uh, Sidewalk Labs the other day, and you know, um, they is that Google things? Google's venture capital? Yep, exactly. And um, they were talking, you know, uh, I think this was at NYU and we were talking, you know, one of those speakers had come in and we started talking and uh, everyone was kind of part of this conversation. But it was like, how do we create a model of any city and be able to change that model as fast as possible to best serve that city? So, you know, if you actually go into the company's kind of data processes, you kind of understand, okay, maybe, you know, the, the processes that we've all, always done, that we've always followed, are good because they, they you know, they're consultative, but do we really need a consultative process or do we need people really working hand in hand with that process uh, to kind of go forward. So if you look at, you know, that process as a ladder, you know, authoritative is at the bottom of the ladder and working hand in hand is on top of the ladder. Consultation is somewhere in between where you're mm-hmm. being consulted or what's being done, but mm-hmm. these, you know, companies, um, or, or, this, this process has to be much more hand in hand, bottom up where you're asking the people what to do and designing around their, their processes. So being that is where the data collection aspect also comes in
0: fascinating fascinating i mean is there anything out there that is like being underrated in terms of the focus or or the opposite actually uh if there's something that there's too much focus on that actually might not be as impactful there's
2: one thing that i know for sure is a culture of an organization which is kind of just propping up you know i've, I've been looking at Some of the data and that is you know propping up from a lot of uh, people that are talking about this is now that there's been covid it's been two years people are seeing at home you know uh, it's uh and there's a being a transition into a hybrid workplace Mm -hmm. are people losing their cultures as well for the specific company that they work at is the you know company culture uh being maintained or not and that is, you know, a big part of the conversation as well as, okay, so along with these services and technologies, how are we preserving our client's culture? How are we preserving the company's culture so that when they're back in the office and they have a hybrid model, their culture still remains intact while they're able to kind of lead the way in what they're, whatever business they're doing.
0: Very interesting. Let's, uh, I think this is a great segue to move on to industry focus. And talk about the uses, you know, highest and best use of our uh, retail, but also commercial real estate at large. What what data points? What what kind of uh, data models should real estate players and investors be be applying? Be looking at when considering alternative uses, right? When considering, like you say, extending uh, the usefulness of an asset, lifetime of an asset.
2: Yeah. So alternative data sets range from. You know, just the data within the asset or around the asset itself, or looking at third-party data sources. And by I'll kind of go into what third-party data sources are. So let's say commercial real estate organization wants to, you know, rent out or lease out certain uh, spaces. They're looking at certain data sets which will allow allow them to align their clients. So what are those data sets they're looking at? one of the things that we started to do um and I've, I've done personally as well is trying to get all this alternative data um of social media coming in so what are the kind of people that are coming in what are the different um you know transactions that are taking place within that building what is the kind of advertisement that's going on there and then we start to realize what activities uh, become part of that space so how is that space activated what activities are part of that area where people are going, where people are coming from and then being able to link all of those activities to those assets and being able to say, how do these activities affect those assets?
0: It's all data. It's all data that that we as social social creatures are generating. And uh, it basically has never been compiled, uh, distilled and, and, uh, you know, put into uh, interpretation uh for you guys i really like where you took this question uh because my original thought was thinking about alternative uses of the real estate uh Mm -hmm. right so if retail is gonna uh convert into industrial for example uh you know to or or add another uh you know diversify the revenue sources but i really like where you took it with alternative data uh sources right As as a as an analytical data mind you That's where you went. Uh, So I I really like that.
1: I'm curious on your thoughts about how real estate owners, developers, operators should be thinking about the best way to use these data sets to optimize their own investment strategies.
2: Definitely. Um, So it kind of brings me to one of the projects that I'd done previously was uh, we were working with on an entrepreneurship kind of uh, class, a kind of a workshop, and we were kind of doing what are these alternative sources of data that real estate people can use to be able to, um, you know, uh, fast track their process uh, uh, in terms of leasing or in terms of sales. And one of the things that we found was, okay, if you're able to get some of these data sets into the hands of real estate players. So um, let's say they, they have a store and they're able to, um, you know, you're they're able to now see who are the people that are coming into those stores? What is the kind of number of people that are coming in? So the footfall, the amount of people that you know um, uh, that come in. Where do they come from? This allows any real estate tenant or a landlord or an owner to be able to understand. Okay, this is the footfall for this building, versus, a uh, Y uh, you know, uh, Y foot or X footfall for this building, and be able to detailed compare how uh, footfalls are kind of comparing within each other so that is just one aspect of them being able to understand okay maybe the value of this building is higher but in actuality there's a lot more footfall in the other building um, so does that create a um, you know a different mindset amongst them saying okay maybe we, we we can find another use or solution to be able to value this building or to be able to get better rents from this building if you're able to do storytelling from data (laughs) and be able to convince our clients that this is a better spot, even though the other one looks like it. And, you know, this is just one factor. These are just a million factors that kind of that data exists out there. It's just about getting those right skills to be able to get that data in a structured format to be able to analyze all of this.
1: Thanks for that, Manu. And maybe there's a bit of a tangent, but in terms of data collection right and 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 maybe stepping away from the real estate for a second how are owners versus tenants thinking about who should be owning that data has there have you heard of any conflicts in terms of who's the end owner of it can they share it does it matter should we care as a consumer should we not what do you think
2: great question and there's a lot of you know, answers to it. There can be right answers. There could be wrong answers. But, uh, you know. We want I'll, I'll... Manu's answer. <laughs> but, you know, my take on it is data is created by everyone, by any activity they're doing. If you actually go in, if you have an iPhone, you can actually go into your phone, be able to see, track what you were doing over the past one month. It'll show you by location, by, you know, um, by different, uh, activities that you're doing. So maybe you know Thursday you went to spa- Starbucks, and I'll show you Thursday you went to Starbucks. This time you walked till here, and then you walked back. And suddenly, this is a data set that you have created. You have given to your, you know, permission to your phone to get this data. Um, Mahu, and... you
1: have, you're going to have to show me this after
2: this episode. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I can actually, I can actually send you a link, which kind of allows you to, uh, you know, go in see exactly where you were, like. Two years ago, and that will be exactly right there. How <laughs> you reach there? <laughs> that's really messed up.
0: We will link it. So uh, are you and wait? Are you telling me that if I do this, I'm gonna find out where I was last night between twelve midnight and two a.m., which I have absolutely no recollection of?
2: <laughs> yes. Well, the time doesn't matter because it, it you, you know, your data has been collected.
1: Anytime. Oh yeah,
0: just anecdotally. Yes.
1: Yeah. No. Yeah. It, uh, it's I, like, I, <laughs>
0: I really, I really like what you said before and how you framed it, which was, "What storytelling can we develop from these data models?" Because, at the end of the day, if you have, uh, you know, if you're looking for the data to say something, or if you, uh, you know, are re- trying to reverse engineer a decision and justify it with data, uh, the odds are we can probably find some data points out there that you know. S- Points into that direction, so it's crucial that uh, we we do the storytelling part right, uh, which is why I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that besides the financial woes that retail is uh, suffering, uh, I think this is also the reason why they're they're going vertical and that uh, there's also uh, a lot of consolidation going on because of the the vast amounts of data and visibility uh, they can acquire. I mean malls uh you know retailers acquired uh, forever 21 and, and and brooks brothers a couple of months ago and uh you you know we continue to see this uh retail consolidation uh especially among retail REITs. uh you know simon acquiring a majority stake in uh, number two or number three talban uh Kimco and wine garden merging in a 12 billion dollar deal uh as well as retail income and merging with uh VerREIT. Uh, I mean, this these powerhouses need need to really uh, diversify their revenue sources uh, by offering hopefully services and experiences that will make uh, the new generations want to want to come to them as well.
2: I'm a huge uh, Robin Hood investor slash trader, so I'm definitely you know up to these trends of what's happening. But I remember. <laughs> Uh, in one of those, um, you know, NYU Capital Markets conferences that we were at, and you know, I was listening to all these, you know, all the CEOs that were coming in from all these REITs. Uh, they had a huge um, panel, and you know, all of them represented about 25 billion dollars together. And um, they were talking about consolidation in the REIT market. All of these companies are looking to consolidate and the kind of trend for all the the REITs. It it shouldn't only be retail. It's, you know, there's sometimes residential REITs as well, some commercial office uh, REITs as well, which are trying to consolidate because they want to diversify their incomes from different sources. So if you look at realty income where, you know, most of their, uh, retail stores are working, but then they have about ten percent of their spaces which are a uh, theaters. So AMC and all of these theaters which which took a beating um the past year. Um they're trying to diverse getting in players like Verit to be able to have that solid monthly income so that they can pay off their dividends every time. But those, you know, solid income companies are able to diversify you know Verit has a lot of industrial office spaces which they're able to get in uh they'll you know they'll there might be a spin-off there as well but who knows but you know a growing trend in the reit market that i've discovered is just collaboration consolidation into bigger and bigger for much more you know solid rental income coming in every month
0: Ground up developments and renovation projects are often experienced as a lengthy, costly and manual process, lacking critical data and metrics, resulting in numerous delays and financial setbacks. Quite commonly, efficiency just isn't prioritized in the design process. With Swap, you can change this today. Swap is an architectural and MEP planning company founded by industry veterans. Using AI and big data, Swap is helping real estate developers nationwide shorten those tedious planning cycles, increase the usable square footage of your project, and reduce construction costs by optimizing your design and engineering decision making. SWAP collaborates with real estate developers and planners to apply intelligent advanced algorithms that deliver detailed building designs and cost estimates faster than ever before possible. To learn more or request a free demo, please visit swap.net. That's S-W-A-P-P dot net. Where have we done the most progress in terms of applying actionable decision making from data, you know, from analyzing everything that we, that it's available. Where have we done the most progress?
2: Well, I can only talk to the corporate development that I've been working very, very closely with. There's been a lot of progress in being able to track, you know, usage of any space. So how a space is activated, why the space was activated, what are the conditions that lead to that space? What do you
0: mean by activated the space? Sorry.
2: All right. So uh, no, that's a great question. So uh, within a floor or a building, um, let's say there's a 10th floor of a building, you're looking in and you're saying, okay, how is this space being used? What are the people coming in? How are they using this space? How can we make this space, um, you know, into a space indefinitely or will come, you know, will look forward to come uh, to to this place? And that's, you know, that's what activation is, is, providing those different um, elements to that space, which makes it homely, which makes it, you know, you know, I want to be, be be there, I want to go there, I want to work there because I have that feeling of, you know, um, or the culture of, you know, you know, liking that place, the space around me. And those are those elements that we, we are, you know, companies start to track of, okay, who's, you know, what are those elements that people are looking for? Are people looking for certain things that are, you know, um, apart from their desk? Do they really want these open desks or or they want their personal private rooms? And, you know, every uh, renter is different. So every time you look into a space, activity is totally different. Is there like a common activity, common space where people are getting coffee and talking to each other? Does that make for an interaction? Can we activate Mm -hmm. that space using, you know, certain elements within that kitchen? So, you know, mm-hmm. so a lot of data sets that, that are coming in, a lot of companies are doing that.
0: That That's crucial. I think that distinction that you just made, and it's something that we uh, went over in one of the previous uh, Tangent episodes of the last season with uh, Emily Antis, who wrote her book uh, The Great Indoors. Uh, and when, you know, the chapter where she was discussing about office, uh, workplace environment, you know, how to improve it. Uh, she, she pointed out what, exactly what she just said, which is not necessarily, it is how we're using it, but how, what kind of interactions are happening and where are they happening, right? So it's not so much about the individual, but about the interactions as well bet, with, between the individuals within that space. Where have we done the least or where are we lacking, you know, applicability in our spaces uh, of, of data? Where, where are we, where there's room for improvement?
2: Well that's a tough question. Every kind of activity has data in it. It's just are we able to utilize it as a point? Or so are, are we, you know are we able to utilize that kind of data set that is coming in. But to be honest, I don't really know of any such, you know, specific activity where there's not a lot of data. But there are a lot of, you know, instances where I've seen where people, you know, you you can definitely use certain data sets and everyone's like, no, nah, we don't really need to use them. We can just, you know, we know what's going to happen. And that's, <laughs> that's where the turning point is of, you know, um, moving from a traditional approach to a more, you know, solid storytelling approach of, okay. Um, there is data and we have to use the data to be able to analyze and tell that story to our client. And that's where, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff happen, but to be honest, I'm not sure about any specific or particular industry where not a lot of data is being used within real estate.
1: so Manu and Eddie, I have um a, a thought on on an article that I was reading earlier today and how data is being used or not to make certain decisions during the Euler pro, um, process. And I started reading a bunch about like racial inequality, right? And like whether that should yeah. be one of the factors to be considered in this Euler decisions. And there was apparently a lawsuit towards it and whether, and, and there was some, a court ruling saying that whether it should or it shouldn't be used. And honestly, I don't know where the conclusion ended. I was like still reading about it and still educating myself about it. But I was thinking like, should we be using data for that? How do you use data for that? How do you like, how do you even begin to decide what the relevant information is versus not? If you're like predicting potential like displacement of people that have been living in a certain area for a while and I'm just like genuinely curious about it.
2: That's good because um, that's a million dollar question, right? Are we creating communities where inclusion and diversity is part of that community? You know, for long in history, um, we've created communities where there was initially some kind of rotation that led to a lot of economic segregation, which led to a lot of, you know, divide among cities and all of these processes which created roadblocks to unifying a community. We have those examples in New York, like we're we're literally sitting here right. talking about this. New York was a prime example of, you know, um, initially of how this was being done, was communities being displaced because roads had to go straight, straight from, you know, point A to point B, nothing can come in between. So every community is being displaced. And guess what? Most of the communities that are displaced were staying there for a very long time, had their you know businesses there, had their life you know life revolving in that particular space, but now you start to look at this process from a very different eye of okay, let's actually understand what this community is about. Is it the you know um, let's look at their demographic aspects. What are the age of age range of people? Is it, um, you know, is it catering to children? Is it catering to adults? Is it catering to people with disabilities? Is it catering to, you know, different aspects and segments of the population who might have been marginalized because of some planning rule, 10, 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, that is not really a part of the process. And this is where a lot of, you know, contention among people comes in. This is where a lot of um, You know, as you said, the, those lawsuits come in where people are never happy or not happy with the process that goes on because it's a much traditional, very, you know, it has come out from that process of, you know, creating straight roads, creating bigger roads, create, you know, massive boulevards to be able to kind of seems really wonderful on the outside. But is it really focusing on that community for which it was built? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's, that's that's where. Yeah.
0: Manu, we have, I mean, uh, it's been fascinating so far. We could talk for hours. It's, uh, you know, we, we are getting close to wrapping up. Now, India and the United States. India, you know, how can India be best prepared to position itself as an alternative to China, not to replace China as the, you know, global supply chain of the world, but just to help, you know, streamline collaboration, you know, between between the United States and India, and, and also present itself as, a, as an alternative to not have a, we can say, single point of failure with depending just on one other nation. It's better when uh, we all depend on each other. So how, how can India be best prepared to, to position itself?
2: That's well, a great question, and I kind of have to, you know, reach back to when we were talking about the Western Hemisphere and how, you know, the society works as as a whole. Uh, Eddie, you kind of pointed out, you know, there's a much more individualistic society, uh, different cultures, versus a more community-based society which functions in India, which, you know, if you literally look at my family, you, you'll be meeting like 10 people when you reach home, and you'll be like greeted by hundreds of people you won't even know half of their names while getting in and you know so it's a much more community-based um society versus an individual where you're you know in the us you're going to a home you're assuming there are five people tops uh versus in india there could be anywhere from five to twenty uh within the same household um Mm -hmm. so um that's you know there's a different kind of aspect of planning and policy which takes place in india is one of these projects that I was working with, we were working with a slum uh, development where we were trying to analyze what really happens in a slum um, in India. So it's a developing country. People are not, you know, it's not really developed. Infrastructure is not really there. There's illegal settlements that take place within big cities. So we tried to kind of go in and we try to see what is the hierarchical structure of, we can create a social structure, urban planning social structure around it. It was fascinating to realize that our community gives way to these structures. Um, we saw, you know, uh, India a very social hierarchical structure society where, you know, in, in ancient times it was, uh, there was four different sects of society, which, you know, ones which were higher in, in uh, than the other in, in terms of their occupation, and in terms of their uh, knowledge, and that's how societies were built. All the, you know, the higher sects of society, they were in, right in the middle of that slum where they were taking the places which were, you know, elevated, while the people who were at the back of the slum, they had walls in between those spaces within the slums uh, and a huge difference in their the way of living, you know, within those different sects of society. And then you compare it to the U.S. and you see it's not sects, but it's more on economic um, demographic conditions that you kind of understand, okay, there's a similar thing that's going on here, but it's not really based on, you know, the religious or the sacrimonial sects that were in India, but in a very different context altogether. So it Mm -hmm. all kind of comes together, but in very Mm -hmm. different ways and very structures. So the hierarchical social structure actually determines how a city or a small place is built and how, you know, these two countries kind of can look at planning in a way which is so different, but so, so same in a sense, and be able to plan around that structure to be able to create that equitable city where everyone is treated equally, um and that's where you know you you also talked about China. China, I feel, is much more developed. They have you know huge roads, huge huge infrastructure. I've been there. I actually, went to Wuhan University, so that is you know um uh, right before COVID hit about a year ago. So. We actually learned about their technologies. And so it's very much similar to the US, where they are cutting through you know, uh, massive infrastructure out there. So it's a very different ballgame altogether.
0: Um, Manu, let's, uh, let's start wrapping this up, because we want All to right. give you a magic wand uh, and pretend, just for one second, that you have a magic wand, and you are the mayor of your city. What two aspects of your city would you choose to fix and why?
2: So um, let me take one city in India and one city in the U.S. One of the metropolitan cities in India is where our societies and our cities are built based on religious structures. Of you know, where the temple or the religious place is at the top of the mountain, and the entire city is kind of around it. So in a lot of cities, a lot of religious cities are created that way. It's it's a good thing in a, in a sense because you know there is community around that particular. Um, a religious spot, but then it allows urban planners to look at that city in a very different way. Be able to create certain policies which allow for development of those cities and not be, you know, um, just lying in those traditional non-developed ways of their being. So being able to inculcate a lot of technology within those you know, cities will be able to compound their development really fast because it it helps them you know you'll be able to integrate all that within their community on the other hand you have you have us uh, where you have all these massive you know, that you, you take Texas, for instance, um, most of the cities, you cannot go from one point to another without using a car. Can we create a city where can walk from one place to another and being able to create new and spaces right there? So it's a different structure. But it all comes down to the same thing.
0: Amen. You, you have my vote. Manu 2024, go.
2: Go, go, governor go for of for Texas. Me. Vote for me 2024. <laughs> there you go.
0: Great. Uh, Manu, last but not least, where can our listeners find you and the great work you're doing with CBRE and learn more?
2: Hey, you guys can actually um, reach out to me on Instagram or you can reach out to me on Facebook. Uh, it's Patak Manu, P-A-T-H-A-K-M-A-N-U. Um, and also, hey, I work in CBRE, so I'm always accessible through any social media So You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or you can reach out to me right in person. Just give me a, you know, give me a quick message. Uh, And, you know, I'll definitely
0: respond. We'll make sure to add those uh, links in the episode description. Manu Patak, thank you once again for being here with us today. Very interesting insights into the present and future of uh, real estate data analytics and urban planning.
2: Hey, thanks, Shami, Eddie. This was just great.
0: This episode was produced by Edward Cohen and Shami Wiseman. If you like what you heard, please share Tangent with a friend. Special thanks to Sam Shandon and everyone at NYU Shack. Tangent's artwork was designed by Michael Lowy. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower as a species. So stay curious and always be learning.